Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. This morning, um, I want to bring the word from John chapter 17. John chapter 17, the title of the message is Jesus' Final Prayer. This is a really long prayer. In fact, it is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus we have in the Bible. And there's just so much there, so much there. Uh, I, I think you could turn this prayer of Jesus into a graduate-level course, so I'm not even going to try to tackle it. I'm going to try to zero in on one very specific aspect of this prayer, and that is the part where Jesus is praying for the future church, all those who would someday come to believe in him, and become followers of him. And so we're going to look at verses 14 to 23, and here's what it says. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for all those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. You know, I've always believed that you can learn a lot about a person by how they pray. If you listen in on somebody's prayer it's a window into their faith. You learn a great deal about who they are. You, you learn about what they dream about and hope for. You learn about what they worry about, what they are afraid of. You learn about the way they picture God, the way they understand the world. You learn a lot. Just listening to somebody close to you pray will give you a huge education in what's going on under the hood of their faith. Now, throughout the New Testament, We read often that Jesus went away to pray, and so the fact that he does pray is everywhere, but it's rare that we actually get to to, um, eavesdrop on one of Jesus' prayers. This is one of them, and it happens to be the longest of his prayers, and it is the last one that was recorded that he prayed before all the events ensued that would lead to his crucifixion and death. And in this prayer, we learn a great deal about what's most heavy and most important on the heart of Jesus Christ. You know, if you know that somebody is dying, they know already, look, I'm terminal. I know for sure that that in about a month I'm going to be leaving this world. When you know someone like that, listen carefully to what they say to you. Because those people are not talking about the bears or the weather. They're talking about weighty things, things that have to do with eternity and glory and the heaviness and seriousness of life. And as you listen to them, You're going to get a revelation on what is truly 
the most important things in their lives and their hearts. Thank you, Steve. <clears throat> so as we eavesdrop on this prayer of Jesus, we see some very important things he has on his heart for the church. You know, in, in this prayer in the garden before his crucifixion, he pictured all of us. He was praying for each one of us who would come to believe in the message of the gospel and trust him as Savior and begin to follow him. And there are certain things he had deeply on his heart for the church. And when we say the church, we really mean Big C Church, all those who are joined together in salvation in Jesus Christ. And so I want to just cruise through some of those, um, those things that he... This is Jesus' vision for all those who would follow him someday. And the first thing I see here is that Jesus prayed that we would be holy. Now, right there, if I don't say another word, the rest of you could probably fill in the next 10 minutes of my sermon in your own way, and we will begin to understand how you conceive what holiness means. Right now, as I'm saying this, every one of you has an idea in your mind of what the word holy means, how you would define it. And it probably helps us understand the way that you have lived out your faith. It even helps us understand some of the guilt and frustrations you might wrestle with. Here's something I think is very important to know. That holiness has too often been defined in terms of a battle against sin. And so the way that we define holiness is holy people are those who don't sin anymore. We got the victory. You know, like you picture a Power Rangers pose. And it's like, I used to be lustful, but now I, I look at sexy people, nothing. I, I don't feel a thing. Like a stone, just nothing. I used to be greedy, but money, pff, I burn money every morning for breakfast. I just don't care about it. We, we think that somehow holiness is this idea of it's entirely framed with respect to sin. But in fact, that actually, and that's partly true, but it doesn't tell the whole story. Because holiness, the way God conceives of it, is not linked so much to sin as it is to him. Look at what he says. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of this world any more than I am of this world. And so he, he's very clear on this. We are different. We are qualitatively different than those who do not know Christ, in that we are no longer of this world. We'll unpack what that means. But he acknowledges that partly holiness is being other. It's being foreign to this world. I used to be of this world, Everything I thought and did was just like everybody else. I was a creature. I wanted comfort, and I wanted nice things and good experiences. I wanted to marry somebody, hopefully attractive, and have some healthy kids with ten fingers and ten toes and all that. We were just like everyone, but at some point something happened. We encountered the Savior, and then we became not of this world any longer. Look at verse 16 again. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. And then he says this, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. That word sanctify in, in the original language is very important to understand. It means set apart or other. It's reserved for another use. The word holy, as God defines it, is not framed against sin. It is saying this. It is to be so devoted. And I think that's a good synonym for the word holy. It is, it is to be so reserved, dedicated, or devoted to another person, to God himself, that every other loyalty pales in comparison. 
To be holy is not to be victorious over sin. That's part of it. But to be holy is to be completely dedicated, devoted to God. And not devoted the way, I'm just looking at the first married couple I see, the way Eugene is devoted to Jean. Okay? That, you, you, you saw the realism in the acting. That's because there was a real connection in life there. They're, they're married. <clears throat> it's not the way you might say like, oh, I'm devoted to you. Like, you have my heart. I love you. It's devoted the way your toothbrush is devoted to cleaning your teeth. You would not be happy with me if I used your toothbrush to clean the shower grout, would you? Or even this, if I, if I said to you, hey, I spent the night at your place. Thanks for letting me crash on your couch. By the way, I love the taste of your toothbrush. It's, and the texture is so, it's like firm. I loved it. Where'd you get it? And you wouldn't be like, oh, that's a Reach toothbrush. It's an Oral-B. I got it. You'd be like, what? You used my toothbrush? I don't think you understand the concept. My toothbrush is from my Tephus. They're not for you. They are devoted, sanctified, set apart for my teeth only. And they are only set apart for one purpose, cleaning my teeth, not scrubbing my shower grout. That's an illustration of this idea of devoted or set apart, sanctified. To be holy, then, is to be completely reserved for God's use, God's purposes, God's pleasure, to belong to Him and only to Him, so that you might say of yourself, there is no question, no internal battle in my mind as to whom I belong to. I am devoted. And so in that sense, then, yes, it is the way Eugene is devoted to Jean. Not in a hallmark greeting card devoted, I heart you. Not that kind of devotion, but saying, I belong only to you. A lot of other women want me, but they can't have me. Amen, brother? This month, come on. They can't have me because I am dedicated, devoted for only one. Are you catching the idea? Pastor Tim Keller of Redeemer Church in New York City has this great illustration for practically speaking what that looks like when you're devoted to someone or to a cause. Imagine an athlete, okay? That's Marion Joyner. She's... What a specimen. She's such an athlete. She's winning a, a gold medal race there. That's the face I would have too if I were winning a gold medal race. Let's suppose an athlete sets as her life's goal that in the next three years she will become a runner in the Olympics and score a medal. Now, if she's serious about that goal, then she's going to have to be devoted to it. You don't become an Olympic runner by having a hobby of jogging once in a while. You know, like when people say, I'm training for the marathon, which is, for a lot of people, I read a lot of websites about how to train for a marathon. You know, training for a marathon requires like six to eight hours of your life each day towards the end. You're practicing running long, long runs, winding down, getting massages, doing all that it's a very time-consuming, expensive process. You can't just train as a hobby or as an afterthought. When you want to set a goal this high and be so devoted, you have to completely set apart your life for this aim. Now, that doesn't mean that this athlete will only train for the Olympics. She's going to watch a movie now and then. She's going to have coffee with friends. She's going to drive a car and surf the Internet. She'll do a lot of those other things. She'll even have to probably work a day job to pay the rent. But here's what devotion does mean. It means that she has no confusion about what is the greatest priority and devotion in her life. Every other decision 
and every other choice is subservient to this primary sanctification, this primary thing for which she is reserving her life and setting her apart. It may determine where she lives. If she wants to train for a marathon, she might move to Denver where the altitude is high because it gives you a competitive advantage. It'll determine what kind of job she has. If she has a job that requires 80 hours a week, she cannot be a corporate litigation attorney because that will just consume her whole life. There's no time left for running. She can't be an eye surgeon, can she, Ed? Because there's not enough time for... Well, maybe he runs marathons, so who knows? But the point is, you cannot... It'll affect everything. Where you work, where you live, what kind of car you drive, what you eat how you dress, what you pack into a bag before you leave the house for the morning. It affects everything. It affects whether or not you can go to that 4th of July party because if it coincides with one of your 16-mile runs, it ain't happening. And you get the idea that what devotion, holiness is to God is that you are so unquestionably devoted to Him that every other choice or dynamic in your life is subservient to this primary loyalty. I belong to God. And what's amazing about this is that as Jesus prays this for us, he knows that we need this. It meets one of the deepest human needs, a, a need to connect to our creator. It's amazing that every identified culture in human history, when you dig past all the novelty of what they're like, every culture in, in the human race has some form of religion. Isn't that remarkable? We have yet to find a culture that doesn't have some religious belief system. Even atheism is a belief system because it's got to be defined. If you could write a book on it, it's a system, all right? And so that's the way it works. Every, it's, it's at the heart of humanity to reach up to our creator and need a connection. We are built to worship something. Just watch American Idol, X Factor, watch any of these shows, and people screaming and wanting to be worshipped. We have this deep inborn need to see something transcendent and connect to it. And that deep human need finds its ultimate satisfaction when we reach up to the one true God and we devote ourselves to him. That's why Christianity is a very unsatisfying journey for those who do it half-heartedly. For those who say, it's just like you can say, look, I'm going to train for the marathon, and you sort of like run once in a while and go, yeah, I'm kind of training. And you're like telling everybody you're training, but you ain't training. And as a result, in your memory, in your diary, you're like, eh, training for the marathon was, eh, wasn't that great. Well, it wasn't that great because you didn't do it. You never felt what it's like to be so devoted to something. It consumed you. It defined your whole life. Now we're talking, I trained. I have done it. I know it completely affected me. I think there are too many people who grew disillusioned with God without ever trying God. You do not come to God halfway and then think that you have experienced God. God is a being we come to with utter devotion. That is what, my friends, it means to be holy. And if we'll have that relationship with God where he is unquestionably the center of our lives, then doesn't it stand to reason one of the ways that we'll express our lives is we'll be more and more free from those competing loyalties. Sin will be less and less a problem because we know who we believe in, who we belong to. I cannot do battle against the temptation of other women by pretending all of them don't exist. 
I do battle against temptation of other women by looking at my wife and remembering again and again every day that I belong to her and I love her and she is worth the choice every single day. That's how we do it. It is in that single-minded commitment to someone that all lesser things fade to black. You cannot achieve holiness by pretending things that are true of you are not true of you. So that's what holiness is. And Jesus prayed this for us because it meets one of the deepest needs of the human heart. And, and uh, let me just uh, give you this. He says to, uh, in there, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. We will be set apart from God when we see him. And you can see him in many places, but Jesus simply reminds us that the primary place we will meet God again and again is in the pages of the Bible. And if you neglect the Bible, your view of God will, by definition, shrink and become distorted. You won't know God very reliably apart from Scripture. Let me, let me um, give you a second thing that Jesus prays for us. Jesus prayed... That we would be sent. Okay? That we would be sent. If devotion meets a deep human need to worship or to know our maker, then to be sent or to have a mission meets the deep human need for purpose. And make no mistake about it, the human heart needs to have a purpose. When people don't know what their purpose is, this is a good translation that captures the essence, I think, of this verse. That where there is no vision, the people perish. Without some clear understanding that God is real and he has ordered the world and given us our value system, without knowing what God wants from us, people's hearts perish. They wither. In other translations, says they run amok. In other words, without a purpose, we will just do whatever feels good at the moment. And in the end, we will do things that ultimately rob us of our lives in the name of trying to get a life. I believe that purposelessness, it's a hard word to say, purposelessness is toxic and lethal to the human spirit. Okay, let me say that again. Here's another way of saying it from a philosophical standpoint. Existentialism is lethal. Do you know what existentialism is? It's, it's a common and popular philosophy today. There's no tomorrow. There's no yesterday. Nothing has any meaning except this moment right now today. I am not somebody on a trajectory or a journey. I am just an organism that happens to have electricity and blood flowing through my system. I'm alive. I'm aware. That's it. Don't give me more meaning, layers upon layers of depth. There's nothing to it. I'm just like the chimpanzee at the zoo or an amoeba under your microscope lens. I'm just a creature, and I'm existing, and that's all there is to life. Some days when you're feeling bad about things, you're feeling sorry for yourself, it is so tempting to believe that nonsense, but nothing could be further from the truth. And if you believe that, in the end, you will succumb to despair because that is the most hopeless view of the world and of human life. And it's just not true. The human heart needs a purpose. You know, there was this um, study done of 3,500 employees at the Shell Oil Corporation. And they were trying to figure out if early retirement is good for people because I think part of it was, it was they weren't trying to see if it's good for their bottom line. 
but they were also gauging the effect it had on the employees. And so they, they traced 3,500 employees who retired at 55 rather than 65. And here's the startling outcome of that study. Those people who took early retirement had an 89% greater chance of dying in the next 10 years than those who retired at 65. I don't get it. You mean moving to Phoenix and golfing every day doesn't extend my life? No, it actually shortens it. To live for nothing kills the human spirit. You take away a person's purpose, and all they are is the polar bear at the zoo batting around his big floaty beach ball and eating some fish and going, is this it? I'm just waiting until death comes and gets me? After a while, what happens, strangely enough, is that in this life of leisure and purposelessness, the end seems like the next great adventure. Bring it on. I, at least I want to see what's on the other side of that curtain. Because this show is getting old. Conversely, and let me give you the positive side of it, a guy named Dan Butner, a sociologist and psychologist, he did this fascinating study. And here's the study he did. He went all over the world and studied, um, he identified what he calls blue zones, places where there's a high concentration of people who live beyond the age of 100. So he was studying centenarians, people who are 100 years plus in age, and he was trying to say, is there some commonality that runs through all these people? And, and the title of his study is How to Live to Be 100. So he's trying to figure out what's the secret. And he dispels a bunch of myths about, you know, treatments and all that. And, but he discovered a couple things that, that bound all these blue zones together. And what's remarkable is in every single one of them, every one of those 100-year-old people could tell you their purpose for living. They could tell you why they get up every morning. For some of them, it didn't have to do with God. It just said, I'm here to keep this form of martial arts going so that it's not lost to the world. That's their purpose. It, there's one blue zone in particular in, in Okinawa, Japan. And they have this word. I have to, to look at what it is. Ikigai. Ikigai. It's my reason for waking up in the morning. It is my defining life purpose and he, he said it was remarkable. Every last one of these people, without even a moment's hesitation, when he asked the question, what is your reason for getting up, they could tell him. Now, you make up your own mind. You know, I'm not trying to give you some scientific um, cause and effect relationship. I'm just suggesting I think this supports what I've always known in my heart and known from Scripture, that without purpose, people cannot seem to keep going. But when you give people a purpose... It makes people come alive because that's what we were made for. We were not made simply to exist. We were made for a reason. I, I had to. I just had to. You guys didn't expect me to go this week without putting this man's face up there. But it's relevant, okay? Steve Jobs, my favorite Steve Jobs story is relevant to this point. There was a point where he realized that he was not the CEO guy who could take Apple to its next level. He was at the end of his life, but at that stage, he knew he needed legitimacy as a business. And so he went and tried to recruit John Scully, who was at that time the CEO of a well-established PepsiCo Corporation, right? I mean, PepsiCo is a big company. This guy has no reason to roll the dice with this young upstart and try to go into this computer business when he was sitting on top of the business world. At the end of the meeting, John Scully's not terribly impressed. He goes, yeah, you know what? Uh, this seems way too risky. The downside far outweighs the upside. Not interested. And then he said Steve Jobs looked at him with that stare that only Steve Jobs can give you. And here's what he said. Hey, John, 
do you want to sell sugar water for the rest of your life? Or do you want to come with me and change the world? Dang. I mean, if you hear something like that, tell me how he got John Scully to leave PepsiCo and work for Apple when it was nothing. It was this challenge. And why was this effective? Because it dug into, it sunk its hook into a deep universal human need. It got at this, John, you're very successful, but the human heart was not made just for success. It was made for purpose. And what you're doing, in effect, is getting very wealthy selling sugar water. Instead, come and become very wealthy making electronic toys. You understand the analogy breaks on at some point. Steve Jobs is not Jesus. But what, what he got, how he got his hooks into John Scully is how Jesus is getting his hooks into us. He's saying, do you recognize that you were not made simply to exist or to succeed, but to live for a purpose? They are not of this world, he says. That's very clear. We are not of this world. But then look what, he, look what else he says. But he says, but you, we, he sent us into the world. Do you know the word sent in Latin is missio? It's the word from which we get the English word mission. In other words, God is calling us to be on a mission with him. There's this kid on Elijah's football team. Elijah's a pretty good football player. There's this kid who's just a phenom. I mean, he's kid's crazy. His name is Tyler Rivelli. He's the running back. And there are some kids who are just born with a knack to run a football. I mean, he is, as if he was born to do this, he gets pounded and he just keeps going. He's not the biggest kid on the team, but he just has it. You know what I'm saying? And all the dads are kind of like, dang, that kid. Man, we're a little jealous of John Rivelli, the guy's father. And I remember talking to one, one coach and I said, Tyler is just unbelievable. And you know what he said to me? He goes, the kid's on a mission. Every game, he's on a mission. He doesn't want water. He doesn't, want, he doesn't look at anything else. He's got one mission. He's going he's gonna to score that football. He's going to run it across the end zone. That's all. And you can see it in this nine-year-old kid's face. It's kind of creepy. He's like, the kid's just like a robot. You go, hey, Tyler, he doesn't even look at you. Kid's on a mission. And as a result of that mission he's on, he is actually successful. But more than that, He is fulfilling his position. He's experiencing thrills and a fullness of that experience that the guy sitting on the bench wishing will never do. And and part of it is, let me tell you, it's not just natural talent. It's focus. I'm I'm on the sidelines watching the kids, and the kids on the bench are always like running up going, Dad, can John come over and play after the game? And they're like thinking about, and you hear all these dads going, Focus! Pay attention to the game. Stop goofing around. Stop picking daisies off the the grass. But that's what these kids on the bench are doing. Not Tyler. Now, Tyler's on a mission. When he's playing football, he's only playing football. And it brings a certain kind of engagement to his life that every one of us needs to experience in some way. To be sent is to be on a mission, is to have a purpose for our lives. And that purpose is hinted at in the 23rd verse of this chapter. To let the world know that you sent me and have loved them. This is our mission. It is to tell, here's a way of saying it in in grade school language, we are a show and tell. 
our mission, our purpose in life is none other than to show and to tell the great love that Jesus has for all people. You can do a lot of other stuff in your life. I hope you are. I mean, I hope you're making products, widgets, healing people on a surgical table. But the great purpose for which you are called, in fact, reborn, is to make the love of Jesus and the whole story of Jesus known and demonstrated before the world. That is the one endeavor in this life that will follow you into eternity. And when you get clear about that, it brings this freedom and experience a wholeness to it that you don't get when you're playing games with this. You know why we admire Mother Teresa? It's not just that she was such a saint. She lived her whole life sold out to this one purpose. While the rest of us admire Tyler from the bench. You know what I'm saying? Dang. And, and I'm, I think the invitation of Jesus, the prayer, the vision he had was, you are sent ones. Now, don't be mistaken. It's not as if we're being sent to a place or on a trip. The whole idea is our whole lives are sent, just like Jesus' entire life was defined by his being sent to the world. So also are we. When we were born again, it was as though we were reborn with a whole new purpose, a B.C., A.D. timeline in our lives. That there was a time when we lived for ourselves or we lived for nothing, but now I'm absolutely devoted to Christ, and I live my whole life defined by this purpose for which I'm sent, and when I engage in that, I will come alive because my human heart desperately needs that. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I wonder how many of us right now are living with a very clear sense of our life's mission and purpose And how many others are simply marking time. And the only way you feel that you're moving is by seeing the size of your house or the newness of your car, the size of your paycheck or the the title on your business card. Some other way of saying, at least I'm moving. At least I'm alive. And God's invitation to us is, don't just mark progress by success, but be sent ones. Let me give you a last thing which Jesus prays for the church. He prays that we will be unified. So to be holy, to be devoted to God, meets our deep human need for worship, to reach up to our creator, our maker, and connect to him. To have a life's purpose, to be sent into this world, meets the deep need for purpose, And it expresses our reaching out to the world around us. But then we also have another very, very strong basic human need, and that is to connect to other people. We have such a deep need for human connection. You know, recently I read an article that was originally published in August of 2009 by Newsweek magazine. It's called Lonely Planet, and here's how the article begins. There are more than 300 million of us in the United States, and sometimes it seems like we're all friends on Facebook. But the sad truth is that Americans are lonelier than ever. You know, that study, that article goes on to report that between 1985 and 2004, the percentage of Americans who had no one to discuss important matters with, that's just their arbitrary way of defining real friend, is somebody, when something really important comes up, I can call them and talk to them about it. They said that number tripled 
to 25%. In other words, one out of every four Americans cannot think of another human being with whom they could reliably and safely discuss an important thing. That's another way of saying one out of every four Americans doesn't have a true friend. I, I want you to let the implications of that sink in for a minute. Because I think that we universalize or we project onto the world normalcy as defined by our lives. And if you've got a lot of friends, maybe you think that everybody's got a lot of friends, but the truth is that an entire quarter of this country's population cannot name for you one real friend. That creates a lot of danger for our society. Would you agree? It also creates a lot of opportunity for those who bear the love of God eternal. This is the reality of our world. Another study I read said that 20% of Americans or 60 million Americans by their own admission feel lonely. Is there any doubt that we long for human connection? We are feeling that that's missing and we need it. Have you ever been part of a setting, a group of people where something was happening among you and you felt so close to those people, it was as if there was an invisible fabric weaving your hearts together. Have you ever felt that at any setting at all? Any of you? You can just nod. Give me, give, give me some feedback. Did you ever sit in a place where you felt like maybe it was a sports team that went all the way to the championship? Maybe it was a family reunion? Maybe a Sunday service? I don't know. Crazy things have happened. Maybe it's your small group? I don't know. But in a setting where it's just so clear, no one has to tell you or verbalize it, there's something going on here. Even at the most shallow level, we could feel it, and it makes our hearts sing. Yesterday, watching the football game, I, I don't know what it was, but I, I felt this real Bartlett warmth. We're playing against Wheaton, and we just abused the Wheaton kids. I mean, it was, it was almost, I felt bad. I felt like I should go over and pray for the coach. And as we're cheering as the visiting team, and I'm looking around at these people. I see them every week, three, four times a week at the practices, at the games. And we're cheering for our kids and for our city. And, and you just feel, even at that shallow level, this oneness. And, and my heart liked it. I liked feeling like I was part of a team cheering for something. It felt good not to be by myself. It never feels as good watching the game on my DVR, the, the Bears game, watching it alone in my living room, and then when, when Devin Esther scores, and I go, yeah, all to myself. It never feels as good as, as when you're actually at the stadium and the place erupts. Why is the experience so different? Because the truth is we all need to feel some kind of deep, profound human connection. Often survivors of catastrophic events feel that kind of oneness. This past week, we, we went to hear Pastor Akira Sato preach. All the pastors went, and uh, he's a pastor from Fukushima, Japan. You recognize that name? His church got obliterated. They were a four-campus church. All four of their campuses destroyed by the tsunami or um, contaminated by the nuclear power plant failure. And now they were all evacuated in a hurry. Imagine this. The officials, they rang these sirens and all that and said, you have to leave your homes. But they didn't say what was up. They just said, you got to leave. So they grabbed a few things thinking, oh, we're going to go back home in a couple hours. They never got to return to their homes. Can you imagine the weird feeling of unsettledness? They now find themselves a congregation of homeless wanderers traveling in a band from city to city, 
seeking the hospitality of camps, of Christian strangers who are now bringing them in. They're, they're being fed by these folks. And now they're finally rallied to the point where they have n- managed to find every single one of their parishioners except for the four who died in the tsunami. And he said, it's weird. We've lost everything. We're homeless, but we feel more like a church than we ever have before. That's the kind of human connection we're talking about. Not the affinity that comes at a shallow level where we like the same things and we like each other kind of as high-by friends, but a deep, deep soul connection. And Jesus prayed for this connection, but he had no confusion about how all that works. Excuse me. Verse 23, he says this. Here's the basis for Christian connection with other people, unity among believers. It is I in them and you in me. That is how we will be brought to complete unity. He says everybody wants that human connection, but what is the most reliable and powerful force that brings people together? And he states very simply, it's always going to be me in them. Here's the thing. Here's the truth. I, and I want you to really do this now. Look around your seat right now. Just, just look around at the people sitting next to you. Have you ever gotten on an airplane and, and felt like, wow, th- this is a morbid thought, but I think this almost every flight. If this plane goes down, these are the people I'm going to go down with. Is that weird? Because I'm thinking of all the weird conversations we'll have on the way down and, and be thinking like, I'm gonna, I'll hold your hand and a fellow human traveler and we're going to fight it together. But I'm looking going, what a weird group of people this would be if this was the last community I had on this earth. But then as you look around this room, at the weirdo sitting next to you, and I say that with love, this is a very strange collection of people, isn't it? Meaning if we were on the plane, we could all be random passengers on a 747, for all we know. But what has brought us together? What could bring together people from such different stories and backgrounds? Some of, us, some of us have high levels of education. Some of us don't have very high. Some of us have a lot of money. Some of us have almost no money. Some of us love food. Other, others of us care less. We come from the most diverse backgrounds, preferences, stories, and journeys. We could not be more different from one another if we tried. But what's amazing from all these divergent points of origin is that like an airport that gathers people from all over, Jesus encounters each one of us at some point in our lives. And out of all these divergent stories, he makes for us one shared powerful story. The person you're sitting next to might be more different from you than you could ever possibly imagine. But if they are in Christ, there's one thing that bonds you together. And that is that when you speak about Jesus, there is instant recognition. I now know what you're talking about. When you talk about the private clubs with wood paneling and five-star restaurants, you lost me. I have no idea what your world looks like. But when you start talking about Jesus, instantly I have this affinity towards you. I, can, I feel connected to you. Do you know what I'm talking about? You, you've experienced this at low levels everywhere. When somebody goes, hey, I, I like this, ba- this weird indie band. I'm sure you never heard of them. And they're like, dude, I went to the concert last night. They're awesome. And you're like, really? You like the same band I like? And, you, you know, it's just a stupid band. But the fact that somebody else likes your band makes you nuts with joy. Why? Why? Because it makes that thing a little more real to you. 
their love of it makes it makes your love of it seem a little more sensible, more powerful, more true. That's why we need each other in the church. That's why this human connection among us, unity in the, among the body of Christ is so important. We can never fully grasp how much this meant to Jesus in this prayer. He dwells on it because for him, our unity is of paramount importance because in our unity, he becomes more real to us. I think I need to hear your testimony regularly because when I see the way God's moving in your life, the way he's showing up in your life, it makes him more real to me. It makes me feel like I'm not a nut for believing in this God because I thought I saw him, but when you told me you saw him too, it makes my faith grow. And this is not just group hypnosis. Don't be so cynical, right? It's the reason we build stadiums when we could just as easily watch the Bears play over the internet. We build the stadiums because that powerful shared experience makes something more significant in reality. And Jesus prayed for us that on the basis of our shared experience of him, we would have a human connection with one another unlike any other that's available in the human experience. That's why we have to be very careful in the church not to build our unity around any other thing but Jesus Christ in us. That is the only reliable source of sustainable Christian unity. And Jesus prayed for us that we would have this kind of unity because it meets this deep human need we have for human connection with one another. So do these things mark Harvest Community Church? Do they describe the way you've come to this body Does it describe the intention you bring as you sit among us Sunday after Sunday? And I don't ask those questions to now bring the room into this place of heavy guilt. I ask it because Jesus had this compelling vision of the church that would follow him. A beautiful picture of what he imagined. And he's praying that for you. And he's praying that for me. Let's honor this prayer of Jesus Christ. As we think about what it is that we're meant to be as a group, let's be guided by this prayer of Jesus. And let's be holy. Remember, holy is not victory over sin. It is an unquestioned belonging to and being set apart for God. Remember that. That's what holiness means. It's like, remember the toothbrush, okay? It's just for him. It's just for him. That's what it means to be holy. Let's remember that we're not just marking time, earning money, and collecting experiences till we die. That is not what we were made for. We were given a mission, a purpose for our lives, and we're being sent back into the world, reborn for him. May this purpose become the the one to which every other purpose is subservient, the one that defines every decision of your life. And finally, let's remember that God really values the unity we feel. Every attitude, every thought that breaks down the unity of the church dishonors Christ and it weakens us. The connection we have to one another is very, very important to the heart of Christ. And it's something worth fighting for vigorously. If you're upset with somebody in this place, 
Don't ever say in your heart, you know what, I can just avoid that person. It's not like I have to fellowship with them. I could just give them a wide berth and hang out with everybody else. Never allow the seed of that feeling to take root in your heart. We fight for the unity of this church because it is central to the vision that Jesus had for us. That's hard. But he will empower us to do it. I want to invite you to bow with me in prayer. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.